As we continue in worship, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once again, to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. Luke 18, 31 through 43. We'll be uh, reading the, the text within uh, the sermon this morning. And hopefully you're there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke 18, 31 through 43. Let's go to learn prayer. Father, where we fall short, where we still lack in our conformity to Christ, we ask that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to show us, reveal to us our sin. Correct our thoughts, correct our actions, conform us, mold us into the image of your Son, that we might be the kind of people that you have saved us to be, that we might reflect your glory in the image of Christ in us. We thank you, Father, that you who began a good work in us will complete it one day. We thank you that you are doing that work even now through the proclamation of your word. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for your word. Shape us and cause us to see areas of our life that are not yet in conforming to Christ. Show us the the blind spots in our lives. Show us where we still need to grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is given this heavenly vision of the Lord. And there the Lord is sitting on his throne, and above him are the seraphim angels. And they're crying out, if you remember, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there he was, Isaiah uh, stood in his dream before the holiness of God, that Isaiah saw his own woeful unholiness. But the Lord cleansed him, and once he cleansed him, the Lord commissioned him. We read in verses 9 to 10, part of Isaiah's commission. It's a peculiar commission. But he says this in Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Isaiah's ministry was to proclaim God's message to a people whose ears would be deaf and whose eyes would be blind to the word of God. They would remain spiritually blind and deaf, even as God's word was proclaimed to them through Isaiah. Their hearts were hardened. Isaiah's ministry was, not, in a sense, not really a successful ministry by our normal measures, because it was a, measure, it was a ministry where people did not respond, but it was a successful before God's eyes, because it accomplished God's purposes. 
And Isaiah's ministry would become a type of Christ's ministry. These verses that are quoted here in Isaiah 6, 9 to 10 would be quoted by the, the Apostle John in John twelve forty to explain why many did not believe in Jesus. What's more, they are also quoted by Jesus when he explained why he spoke to the crowds in parables. And what we learn from Jesus' ministry and Isaiah's ministry is that one can hear and see Jesus and not comprehend Jesus. One can listen to his words, follow him around, and even eat meals with him, and otherwise be close to Jesus, but still lack a comprehension of who he is. Sadly, what is true then is still true today. One can read Jesus' words in the Bible, listen to sermons about him, attend a church where Christ is proclaimed, participate in the activities of such a church, and even partake of the Lord's Supper, and otherwise be considered closely associated with Jesus, but still lack of comprehension of who he is. Like the people in Jesus' day, we can have such a strong personal view of Jesus, our own perception of Jesus, that we miss the biblical view of Jesus. Such people are spiritually blind. You see, without comprehension and understanding of God's Son accurately, there can be no saving faith. There can be no salvation. And this is the main truth from today's passage. As we study it, I pray that it would impress upon you and me, all of us, the need to see God's Son and God's way of salvation clearly. To understand it not because what we perceive or what we think, but what does the Word of God reveal? And not just what one passage or two passages reveal, but what all of Scriptures, all the passages of Scripture reveal to us of God's Son. You know, if you think that you know Jesus just after reading the four Gospels, then you're mistaken because there are still 62 other books in the Bible that speak and point to Jesus. All of Scripture reveals Jesus to us. And as we come to this passage then, we pray that you and I would come to more clearly see who Jesus is. In this section, Jesus is on his final approach to Jerusalem. On the way, he is preparing his disciples for his inevitable departure while continuing to proclaim the kingdom of God. In the preceding passage, Jesus had had an exchange with a rich young ruler that teaches us that entrance into his kingdom requires a willingness to abandon all earthly treasures to follow Jesus Christ and seek his heavenly treasures. It challenged all of the Israelites' view of salvation. And Jesus here continues to challenge his disciples in their understanding of him and the way of salvation. As we look at this passage, it's really two little sections, two passages. It, and they each teach us a truth that reminds us of the need to see God's Son and God's way of salvation clearly. As an outline, we'll put it the two truths that remind us of the need to see God's Son and God's way of salvation. They're really the same. Clearly, God's Son is the way of, God's way of salvation. We need to see them clearly as we look at this passage. So, let's look at this passage together then. Point number one, truth number one, is found in verses 31 through 34. And the truth that we must, 
we must learn is that this, and must understand clearly is that the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer. And the twelve, as we're going to learn, did not comprehend this. Verse 31 to 34, let's read it. Read it. Follow the in your Bibles as I read out loud. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Verse 31 here tells us that Jesus particularly takes the twelve aside. And he speaks these words to them. Now, these 12, you recall, are some of the earliest and most devoted of Jesus' disciples. There's many other disciples, but these 12 were the, were the main ones. They had been witnesses of all his miracles and all his words. If anyone ought to have grasped the meaning of Jesus' words, it should have been these men, these 12. Let's take a look then at what Jesus conveys. First of all, Jesus reveals to them that his journey to Jerusalem is to fulfill the scriptures. He teaches them that the Son of Man must come to fulfill the scriptures. He must go to Jerusalem in order to fulfill what God's word has promised. You recall that since Luke 9.51, Jesus had been determined or was determined to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 13.22, he was proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. In Luke 17.11, he was on the way to Jerusalem. Luke's, uh, this big central section of Luke is, he's been emphasizing that Jesus inevitably heads to Jerusalem. And all, in fact, the whole, uh, it, and it's, it's all to fulfill scripture. Jesus says, and now, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem in co- as, in a, uh, not just because it was the Passover, it was approaching, and every Israelite was heading to the Passover. It wasn't merely a whim, it wasn't merely just he wanted to go see the sights. It was because of scripture. He says, all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Verse 31. And this has been Luke's main purpose in writing his gospel, if you remember. He writes to a Gentile believers, Theophilus being the primary, to affirm their faith in Christ. That their faith in Jesus Christ is warranted. Although the many religious Jewish religious leaders opposed Jesus as the Christ, Luke writes to these Gentile believers that they can trust in Christ because all that takes place in Jesus' life was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. His ministry was a fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. Now, Jesus simply teaches them now that he's going to Jerusalem in order to fulfill scriptures. And if he'd stopped right there, he didn't explain any more. I think the twelve would have had no problems with this statement. They would have accepted what he said. Because they were looking to him as the messianic king. And they were expecting their king to go to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom and then sit on the throne of David, just as promised in the Davidic covenant. They were expected the Son of Man to be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people's nations and language might serve him as promised in Daniel, in Daniel's Son of Man vision in Daniel 7, 13, 14. What they didn't expect, however, was what Jesus would reveal next. In verse 32 and 33, that the Son of Man must suffer and die as a fulfillment of Scripture. In these, uh, in these 
two verses, Jesus uses seven different verbs to describe what was going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. Six of the seven are in uh, the future tense, and one of the other one, last one, is just modifying one of the future tenses. And these, so these are these these future tense verbs are indicating uh, not just possibilities or, or probability what happened, what he thinks might happen, but these are things that will certainly happen. They will take place. Jesus reveals exactly the sufferings that he will endure in Jerusalem before they happen. Number one, he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus will face the suffering and betray- of betrayal at the hand of his own. First, of course, his own disciple, Judas Iscariot. But then his own people, the chief priests and scribes. In fact, Matthew and Mark's uh, parallel to this explain how he would be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, who then in turn would hand him, them, him over to the Gentiles. But the reason they handed him over to the Gentiles, why they betray him, is because the Jews in those days had no authority to carry out the death penalty. They handed him over to the Gentiles so that he could die and be killed. Number two, and the, the verbs number two through verbs number two through five are: he will be mocked, he will be mistreated, he will be spit upon, and he will be scourged. In the hands of both Jewish and Gentile authorities, Jesus would suffer humiliation and torture. This is the king that they were expecting, but they didn't expect him to come this way. We read of the Gentile mistreatment of Jesus in Matthew 27, 26 through 30, and as well as its parallels. Let me just read it for you, because this just describes exactly what he, just, uh, what he predicted. Then he, that is Pilate, Pontius Pilate, released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Verse 28. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. It was the cruelty of man. Though Pilate found Jesus guilty of nothing deserving death, seeking to satisfy the crowds, he had Jesus scourged whipped and hands him over to be crucified. Even before he is crucified, he is, after the scourging, he's left bloodied all over his back. They cast a, a robe around him, hand him a, a reed, build a crown of thorns, and they press it upon his head. They mock him and hail him, spit upon him, and they take his reed from him and starts beating him on the head, forcing the crown of thorns further on his brow, laughing, mocking, mistreating. This is what Jesus endured. This is what he predicted would happen. Number six, the sixth verb, they would kill him. Finally, they crucified him. All four Gospels record his crucifixion 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They drove large metal nails through his hands and his feet and hung him on a cross like a lowly criminal to suffer a slow, agonizing, and suffocating death. Jesus knew all that would happen to him before heading to Jerusalem. He had full knowledge of all the details. And yet he still went. He went knowing that he would suffer and die. But he also knew one more thing. The seventh verb, he will rise again. He will rise again on the third day. He will rise from the dead. Fulfilled later in Luke 24, verse 6, when the angel says to the woman, He is not here, he is risen. Jesus knows exactly what is to come. His betrayal, his suffering, his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. Because all of it takes place as a fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus understands all this because what happens to Jesus in Jerusalem is fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Particularly prophecies found in Psalm 22 and the most well-known Isaiah 53. We've preached on that before. And although it was foretold in scriptures, we, we read sadly that the twelve could not understand how, understand it. They did not understand how it would fit with their concept of the Messiah, the Christ, as the eternal reigning king that they were all expecting. And so we read in verse 34 that they did not comprehend. The disciples understood none of these things. You know, I don't know if Jesus, in a sense, he was, of course, he was in, informing them uh, of what was happening to him, what was going to happen. And that must have been a burden. We know he would agonize it when he was in the, about, even in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, but when he tells his closest disciples, they don't even get it. Say, like, huh? What? It's like trying to share in a lesser, much lesser way. It's like trying to share a burden with, with friends or close friends or family, and they, and they don't get it. There's no comfort even in that. But anyways, they just didn't comprehend it. And though Jesus stated it so plainly, and we kind of scratch our head, how, can they, how could they miss it? Because we have the rest of the New Testament to fill, our, fill, fill in the blind spots for us. But they so wanted the Messiah to come as their conquering king that they could not grasp him as the suffering servant. It just didn't fit. And sometimes that can happen to us. We too can be so caught up with seeing Jesus in a particular way, from a particular perspective, that we miss what the scripture reveals about him. For instance, we might think of Jesus, following Jesus, as a path to blessing, which it is. But that we may think of it only in that way, that we miss completely that following Jesus can also be a path to suffering as we suffer for the sake of Christ. Because when we follow Jesus, there will be times we will hold to biblical morals or practice biblical convictions or proclaim biblical truths and those won't always be received by the world just as it wasn't received when Jesus' day. And it will lead to suffering. It will lead to persecution. We all like to think of the Christian life as being a life of peace, but sometimes it is a life of persecution. 
Or even in light of last week's passage, we think that, we may think that riches are really our, our source of, our comfort. It's a source of, it's God's blessing to us. But even as that it is, more often riches can be a source of stumbling for us. That the more we have, the more unwilling we are to lose it for the sake of Christ. And if the Son of Man must suffer, how can we think that we can avoid it? We must be careful and guard ourselves from holding only just one perspective or having just emphasizing only one truth about Jesus and neglecting the other truths of Jesus. All of Scripture teaches about Jesus. We must balance it all and understand it all because they all fit together in the one person of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. That's the first truth that we must keep in mind that the Son of Man must suffer even though the twelve did not comprehend it. The second truth that reminds us of the need to see God's Son clearly and God's way of salvation clearly is found in verses 35 to 43. And that is that the Son of David must show mercy. And in contrast to the twelve who could not comprehend the truth of Jesus, here a blind man, a soul blind man, sees the truth. And we see in verse 35 to 39 this, the, the cry for mercy of this blind man. The cry for mercy. Look at verse 35, 39 with me, please. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. The setting here is the city of Jericho, made famous by, of course, the Israelite victory uh, over the mighty walled city in Joshua chapter 6. It really was God's victory that he accomplished for Israel. And it was a city that was located five miles west of the Jordan River and 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And it would be, and Jesus is on his way from uh, Galilee, Perea, and then to, uh, to Jerusalem. He's accompanied not only by his disciples, but he's accompanied by a crowd. And it's not just his own family and friends that are coming with him from Galilee, but there's other people, other crowds of people that are coming in the throngs, all heading towards Jerusalem for the Passover. But unnoticed as they walk th- uh, uh, through Jerusalem, uh, Jericho, unnoticed by the crowd, sitting by the road, begging was a blind man. Would have been insignificantly perceived, if if at all, by anyone. Mark actually reveals us the name of this beggar. His name was Bartimaeus. He was blind. From the wording we could tell that he was once could see, but he had become blind. And since he had become blind, he could no longer work. And, though he, and thus he had to live his life as a beggar. He'd probably sat there all day begging for money or for food. When all of a sudden, he, as he starts hearing the crowds of people passing by, it's a larger crowd such that he asks, starts asking the pastor, what is this? Why is there so many people here? What's, this, what's the reason of this large crowd? And the pastors by, they tell him, it's because Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Jesus of Nazareth. He recognizes the name. He knows that name. 
Jesus of Nazareth, the one who works miracles, the one who's known for his teaching that is with authority, the one who heals the sick, who raised the dead, who gives sight to the blind. And so he, he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now notice what he calls and recognizes Jesus as. Others had said that this was Jesus of Nazareth. But to Bartimaeus, it was very clear who Jesus was. Jesus was the son of David. Jesus was the Messiah. That's why he calls him son of David. This is only the second time that this phrase is actually used in, the, in Luke's gospel. It's only two places. The first was in the genealogy of chapter 3, where he is called a son of David. But this title, however, in, in this context, meant more than that Jesus was just a descendant of David. For all Israelites understood it in those days as a messianic title. You recall from 2 Samuel 7 that God had promised to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of David's kingdom forever. And when Matthew uses this term, Matthew, in fact, Matthew's gospel uses it the most because he's writing to a Jewish audience. But he, when he recording the Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem, the crowds were shouting what? They were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, Matthew 21.9. The Israelites in that day had connected that the salvation of the Lord with the coming of the Son of David the son of David was the Messiah, was the means of salvation of the Lord for Israel. What's more, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that in the days of the Messiah, that the eyes of the blind would be opened. We read about that in our call to worship, Isaiah 42. It's found in Isaiah 35 as well. Bartimaeus, though blind, saw and recognized Jesus as the Messianic Son of David. He saw the truth. He comprehended the truth. This was Jesus, the Son of David, and He alone could help Bartimaeus. You see, a proper recognition of Jesus is needed before anyone will turn to Him for salvation. Because Bartimaeus knew who Jesus was. He cries out to Jesus for help. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That latter part of the phrase, have mercy on me, reflects that Bartimaeus is very much aware of his helpless condition. It's expression of his need. Have mercy on me. The verb here can also be translated as have pity. Have compassion on me because I am in need of mercy. I am in need of your pity. I am in need of your compassion. I am a needy helpless man. Bartimaeus was very much aware. He knew what he lost. He once was able to see and now his life has is, is been torn upside down since he lost his sight. He's aware of his pitiful condition and so he cries out to Jesus for mercy. He's without sight, without money, without family, without home, without food and without future. He's aware of his complete helplessness. And so he is persistent in his seeking of Jesus' mercy because there's no one else has been able to help him. 
Everyone else that has passed by, he has asked for alms. Alms. But for Jesus, he asks for mercy. And although others were sternly telling him to be quiet, be quiet. Don't make, a, don't make such a fuss. He kept crying out nevertheless. He knows that no one else can help him except for Jesus. Appreciate the example of Bartimaeus. Do you understand that no one else can help you in your helpless condition but Jesus? Does it reflect in your life persistently, consistently seeking after and pursuing Jesus? Because only the Son of David can have mercy on you. Only the Son of David can help you in your helplessness. Bartimaeus is an example, an example of the kind of faith that we all need for salvation. That one must realize their complete helplessness to save themselves. And that our only hope is in Jesus. See, only when we recognize our helplessness against the power of sin, only then are we going to cry out to Jesus for help. If you don't think you're helpless, you're not going to cry out to Jesus for salvation. You might cry out to him to, to get rich. You might cry out to him to, to get a finer wife or a, or a husband. You might cry out for him to get a promotion, get an A on those tests, or do well in school. But the only time when you're going to cry out to him for mercy is when you realize how helpless you are. Genuine salvation comes to those who thirst and hunger for it. Who know that they're thirsty. Who know that they're hungry. For only then will they be satisfied. Do you know that you're, do you know and are you aware that your sin has left you thirsty and hungry for righteousness? And that righteousness or the deliverance from your sin can only come through Jesus. Are you desperate enough that nothing will stop you from seeking God's mercy? That's what Bartimaeus does. Example to us of how to pursue Jesus for mercy. He knows that only the son of David can show him mercy. So he cries out. He cries out for mercy. And we find that he, because of his persistence, as he persistently pursues after Jesus, cries out to him, he receives the gift of mercy in verses 40 to 43. The gift of mercy. Verse 40 and 43. Let's look at the scriptures. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Praise God. See, as a result of his persistent seeking, Jesus stops now and he calls and he commands actually Bartimaeus to come to him. Bartimaeus has been calling out to Jesus now. Jesus calls to him. And Jesus, verse 41, asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus up to this point has been crying out for mercy. Now Jesus presents him with this question that is designed to further draw out his faith. What would he ask of Jesus? Would he ask for alms, for money, for bread? No. Bartimaeus knew exactly what to ask for. He wanted to see again. Lord, I want to regain my sight. I want to be able to see. 
And even in this final request, Bartimaeus recognizes who Jesus is. He is Lord. He seeks the help of Jesus, the son of David, to regain his sight because he knows that the Messiah can heal the blind. By answering Jesus' question, Bartimaeus was expressing his faith in the Lord. Jesus responds then to his request in verse 42. He says, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, Bartimaeus regains his sight and then he begins following Jesus on the road. There's no, none that he's no touch. He just, God just, Jesus simply speaks it and bam, it happens. The phrase, your faith has made you well, is literally, uh, your faith has saved you. We've seen it in other places in Luke so far. And the saved, we learn, has a sense of, can mean delivered either physically or spiritually, depending upon the context. If you recall back in Luke chapter 17, verse 9, Jesus had healed ten lepers. And only one of those lepers returned to give glory to God. And he was a Samaritan even. But Jesus said to that one leper, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. See, all ten lepers were healed. But the lone leper's faith in Jesus manifested in him giving glory to God had saved him. Saved him spiritually. And what do we see in our passage? Immediately, Bartimaeus regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. Just like the lone leper, Bartimaeus' faith in Jesus, which was evidence in his glorifying God, had made him well, had saved him, as Jesus says, or Jesus declared. For Bartimaeus, as he experienced physical healing, he also experienced spiritual healing, salvation from, from sin because of the mercy of Jesus. But none of it would have happened if Jesus had not willed to show mercy to him. If Jesus had not stopped. He was a blind beggar on the side of the road. Jesus in the midst of a crowd. It is so easy to just keep going. But Jesus stops and cries out and calls specifically for this blind beggar. Forgotten by everybody else. Ignored by everyone else. But not to Jesus. You matter to Jesus. And he calls this beggar to come to him and says of him, ask, what is it that you wish? And he asked for his sight. He asked to see. And Jesus heals him. And as a result of his faith, Jesus tells him that he is not only physically healed, but spiritually healed. Salvation cannot happen apart from the mercy of God. The mercy of Jesus Christ. And this is so critical for us to grasp. You know, we cannot work for our salvation. We can't earn our salvation or ever deserve our salvation. We're helpless. We have to understand that we are helpless in our sins. And only because of the mercy of the Son of David, of the Jesus Christ, can we find salvation and the help we need against sin. 
But thankfully, our God is a God of mercy. The real question is, do we cry out for it? Do we cry out to Jesus for mercy? Jesus will stop for you. But will you cry out for him? Do we cry out for Jesus? Do we cry out for God's mercy? Is that why you, we follow Jesus? Because of the mercy of God that we need from him? Or is it we follow him for something else? That's the second truth that we need to grasp. That the son of David must show mercy. We, we come, we must see that Jesus comes to show mercy. Or our mercy comes from him. The blind man saw this. Ironically, in contrast to the twelve who did not comprehend when Jesus made it so plain and clear that he came, he would suffer and die in fulfillment of the scriptures. Well, as we conclude, without comprehension and understanding of God's Son and God's way of salvation, there can be no saving faith. You see, it's not enough just to simply say you believe in Jesus. The Mormons say they do. The Jehovah's Witnesses say they do. The Roman Catholics say they do. Many Americans who belong to mainline denominations all across our country, and even no church across America, all say they do, that they believe in Jesus. The question is, what kind of Jesus do they mean that they are believing in? Most importantly, what kind, more, even more important than that, is for you, what kind of Jesus, or which, who is this Jesus that you, you mean when you say that you believe in Him? See, to trust in, it, in Jesus with an unbiblical view of Jesus is to not trust in the true Jesus. And that is a path that leads to destruction and hell. As we've seen today in our own passage, one can follow Jesus and completely miss that he came to suffer for our sins. Thankfully, the twelve would eventually come to see the truth of Jesus and believe in, in him. But I pray that all of us would do would do that. We, all of us would understand that Jesus that we believe in is a Jesus that must come, that had to come in fulfillment of the scriptures to suffer and die for our sins because of our sins. What's more, we must recognize that we need Jesus to show mercy to us. If we have never understood that God's gift of salvation is a gift of His mercy and grace, then we misunderstand why Jesus came as God's way of salvation. We misunderstand why He came. He comes to show mercy, show God's mercy to us. Let us learn from a blind beggar who recognized his need for mercy and cried out to Jesus Christ for mercy and sight. A faith that leads to salvation is a faith that recognizes their need for God's mercy. Here's some uh, questions, and I'll leave, I'll leave you three questions just with, for your discussion in your groups or families or even just reflection. Question number one Who is the Jesus that you follow? Who is the feast Jesus that you believe in, that you trust in? If your understanding of him, is your understanding of him shaped by all of Scripture? 
or just maybe your favorite passages about Jesus. You know, we can get, you can kind of look around in scriptures and just use Jesus to justify any sort of view that you have almost. But we need to follow a Jesus that is reflected in the totality of scriptures. Secondly, second question is, why do you follow Jesus? Is it because of his mercy or something else? Why do you pursue Jesus? Why did you come to Jesus? Do you come to him because you recognize that you are completely helpless and only Jesus can give, can give you the help you need? That's why and you need his mercy? Or have you come to him for um, the, the social con- re- connections? Have you come to him because you, you want him to help you to get rich or successful? Are you coming to him because you got some personal issues that you need to work through and that's what you need Jesus for? Yes, Jesus can, can and may help you in some of those areas. But that's not a saving kind of faith. You follow Jesus because he is the son of David. He is the Messiah who is, came as a fulfillment of God's plan of salvation so that all who are found desperately helpless in their sin can turn to him for mercy by believing in his completed work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And the last third question, if you have faith in Jesus, then how is your life glorifying him? Barnabas immediately begins following Jesus, glorifying him, and everybody who knew his life began praising God too. Are you... As a follower of Jesus, are you praising Him? Are you following Him? How, how do you follow Him? Is just turning on your computer once a week, watching this service, is that following Jesus? I hope that's not the extent, the extent of your following of Jesus. I hope every day of your life, you are trying to follow His commands, follow His ways in how you live, and how you work, how you study, how you relate with your neighbors. How you relate with God. And then, however, how you live, is it, as people look at your life, as they, they watch your life, are they praising God for your life? Is there change that they see? A transformation they see? Is there something different about us? And I hope, especially, I'm going to give one application just in light of political season. Whether you are a Democrat, Republican, or Independent, or something else, Green. And we can have political differences. We may not all vote the same. We might not all value the, the issues the same way. But I hope that all of us, when we, though despite our differences, we can have, we can have respectful dialogue with one another in a way that is not like the world. That is not hateful, not derogatory, not judgmental, but loving, but desiring to speak truth. But even more so, recognizing that whatever happens politically (laughs) pales in comparison to ultimately what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. Whatever happens to the kingdoms of earth, our value, our treasure, our joy is bound up in the kingdom of God. And so, come November 4th, 
whatever may come, we will still be joyful. We will still be about what we're about, proclaiming Jesus Christ. And let the world see. May they learn from our example and praise God. God bless you this week. May you walk with Him. If there's any way that uh, we as a church can support you, encourage you, please reach out to us. Uh, we have our emails. Our, our, there's a links to, for prayer. Links for, if you have questions, emails. You can email us and contact us. We'll be, especially as uh, members out there, if you need any pastoral help, uh, please contact the elders, contact me, and we want to minister to you in any way that you need. God bless you. Till next week. Lord in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for revealing us more of who Jesus is. Help us have a clear understanding of Jesus Christ in his ways, his, his person, his work, his ministry, and the way of salvation that is found in him alone. Correct us, Lord, when we, for any mistaken or incorrect thoughts about Jesus and give us a clear understanding of him. We thank you for sending him to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Lord, that he is the, the way to reach you. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us in him. In view of these mercies, Lord, we, we want to worship you, want to live our lives to glorify you, want to live our lives as a sacrifice for your service. Use us, we pray. Continue to ch- uh, challenge our, th- our thinking, our thoughts, our lives, so that we would more reflect Christ. Guard us, Father, from the sin and temptation and the way of this world. Help us to be brave and courageous as we walk your ways. Follow after Christ, the things of eternity. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.